0: Uh, Dear Jesus, um, you are awesome. And we need you to send your spirit here to open our eyes to the glories that are in this text. They are far too great um, for me to speak about. And yet I must I'm compelled to, and and therefore, uh, we need your help. I need your help in communicating this, Father. Remove any error from my mouth. And I need help in hearing this along with my brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would open our hearts, our eyes, to see what is the hope to which you've called us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to... John 6, verse 35. John 6, 35. Um, We've been going through chapter 6 for uh, the last two weeks. You may recall from the first week uh, that Jesus on the mountain showed who he was through this provision of bread to at least 5,000 people. and what he showed in that moment was and we, we saw this very clearly, that he can provide us with anything that we need. He is a sufficient, all-sufficient provider. That was made very clear in the first week. And then the second week, we see, as he begins teaching in Capernaum, he calls himself the Bread of life," which means that he's not just an all-sufficient provider. He is, in fact, an all-sufficient provision. In other words, Jesus Christ is the single most important thing that you and I and that anyone else on this planet needs in their life. There is nothing more important. There is no one more important, more significant than this bread of life we call Jesus because this bread, when we receive it, when we embrace it, gives us eternal life. This bread is the only thing that we truly, ultimately, eternally need. Jesus was the one that we were made for. He's why we exist. He's the purpose for which we were created. And he is the only place in the universe where our souls can find true satisfaction. And today we're going to pick up in that same verse that we just saw, John uh, 6.35, the same verse where he makes this stunning claim. And we're going to continue a little ways beyond that to see what else he has to say. So verse 35 of John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So let's unpack uh, this a little bit. First, Jesus tells all of these people in verse 35 that he is the bread of life. He's the bread of life. We've just been talking about that. That coming to him means that you no longer hunger for the things in this world. You don't need to chase those anymore. Believing in him means that you you don't thirst for, you don't need to thirst for anything in this world. This is an invitation to eternal life. And if you recall from last week, This is the same invitation that God uh, uh, issues through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. He says, come to me that your soul may live. And these people who are hearing Jesus preach in Capernaum are standing before the one, the very one, who Isaiah was writing about, the bread of life, which God has given to the world so that they might believe in him. And yet, as we see here, they actually actually don't believe. Jesus says that they don't believe. We saw indications of it earlier that there was unbelief there, that their their beliefs had ulterior motives. But according to verse 36 here, Jesus says, you've seen me and you don't believe. You don't believe in me. Now keep in mind, and I think it's easy for us 2,000 years from this event to say, well, you know, it's hard to believe in Jesus. He's not around. He's right in front of them. And keep in mind that there's no rational or logical reason for them not to believe right now. He has literally healed countless people everywhere he's gone. And just the day before this, he fed 5,000 people from nothing. From like five loaves of bread and two fish, 5,000 people at least, probably a lot more, were fed. He's shown them many signs. And these signs all point to the fact that when he says, I am the bread of life, He means it, and we should trust him. And yet, it's clear here, they don't believe. And this leads to an astonishing response from Jesus. Listen to what he says here again in verse 37. It's amazing. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So this is Jesus' response to their unbelief. He calls out their unbelief and he makes this statement. They've seen Christ. They don't like what they see. They've rejected him. And so he says to them, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And it's clear when he says that he's talking about people. It's more clear as the passage continues. But it's clear here because the idea that he's expressing to their unbelief is that the Father has given people to the Son And what Jesus says here is all of them that the Father has given to the Son, meaning every single person, will come to him. This coming here, if you look at verse 35, is interchangeable with believing and receiving, embracing Jesus. So every person that the God the Father gives to the Son, Jesus says, will believe in him. That's what he's saying here. And he's saying it to people who've seen him and don't believe him. And what makes this huge is that as he continues into uh, verse thir- 37 or through verse 37 he tells them people who haven't come to him he tells them that whoever does come to me whoever believes in me I will never cast out. And so let's take that statement and, and just for a moment pause this narrative that we're reading and just turn that statement towards us. Recognize what Jesus is saying here. If We've received Jesus. If you've received him, if you've embraced him, if you trust him, and you've come to him, the promise that he's offering here in verse 37 is that he will never cast you out, not ever. And the verses that follow explain why he won't do that, why he won't cast out people who come to him. Um, that when they, when they believe in him, they belong to him, not just for a few days not just for a few months, not just for a few millennia. They belong to him forever. That's what never means there. When he says he's not going to cast them out, he means it. Verse 38, the reason why he's come down from heaven is specifically to do this. He says for, the reason why I won't cast you out is that I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent me. So Jesus isn't about some kind of selfish agenda, about his own purposes. Jesus' purposes are knit to the will of the Father. He's about his Father's business. In verse 39, he begins to explain and unpack what the will of his Father is. Why is it that Jesus came down from heaven? That's what he's saying. You want to know why I came down from heaven? Here's the first reason. It's the will of my Father that I lose nothing of all that he has given me. That's why I came. This is another way of him saying he's not going to cast anyone out who comes to him. He says, I won't lose any of them because that's why I came. That's my mission, that's my purpose, not to lose a single one. And, And instead, rather, raise them up on the last day. Which, of course, he's referring to the resurrection. We spent several weeks during Easter, looking at that event specifically. So the Father's will, the Father's purpose, the Father's design, according to Jesus in John 6, is that Jesus would lose none of all that he has given him. And in verse 40, Jesus repeats this statement about the will of the Father, but he he changes it and, and alters it into a kind of invitation. Look what he says in verse 40. He says, for this is the will of my Father again. And then he says, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is inviting everyone in front of him to look on the Son and to believe in him. And if you do that, he says, you will have eternal life. You'll be raised on the last day. This is the will of my father, he says. This is, how, this is how my father wants it to be. So in sending his son into the world, God is holding out the true bread of heaven. And he's telling these people through Jesus' words and through my words right now, as I repeat what he said, take bread eat this bread. Embrace him. Embrace his glory. Embrace his worth. Embrace his his majesty. Receive him for all that he is. And if you do that, you have eternal life. You belong to my son forever. Never to be lost. Never to be cast out with this assurance of being raised up on the last day. So how do they respond to this? This is the invitation. How would you respond? This is what they do. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not, Is this, Is is not this Jesus, The son of Joseph, Whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day so let's get this right let's try to understand what jesus is saying here so john refers to these people in verse 41 this is the first time i think in the chapter he refers to them as jews (coughs) so they may be the crowd that had followed him from the mountain the previous day before, crossed the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we don't know quite for certain. Uh, we know the crowd is still there because of what happens later on in this chapter. But, but some 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 uh, scholars believe that these are Jewish leaders in the synagogue of Capernaum. Uh, we know that he is teaching right now in the synagogue at Capernaum because of verse fifty-nine. It, it says that he says all these things there. Um, so he's teaching there, and. Because John uses the word Jews, many scholars believe he's talking about the Jewish leaders. So same crèche of people, same group of people, um, but whoever they are, one thing is very clear. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They, they, they have an issue with Jesus' claim to be the bread of life. They take issue with this. Because Jesus grew up in Galilee, and Capernaum is a city in G- Galilee on the north northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and that means they may know his family. They're like, Jesus, there's no way you're from heaven, you have a father, you have a mother, we know Joseph, we know Mary, you're not from heaven. Now, Jesus at this point could say uh, many things. Notice that he doesn't capitulate to their argument. Notice that he doesn't give in to it and engage it. I mean, think about what he could do. Before we even continue with the rest of the narrative, Jesus, Jesus could clear this up with a real quick you know, Christmas story lesson. He could break out the flannel graph, get a nativity up, and say, okay, this is, I'm, I'm going to explain this to you. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't go to an explanation. And if anybody could explain what happened the night he was born and the, night he, and the time that he was conceived, Jesus could do it. But he doesn't. He, he skips right over that and he goes to the heart of the issue. He says, stop grumbling. Stop grumbling. And then he says something breathtaking. No one, he says, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus didn't need to go there. But he did. And I think we have to ask Why? He could have simply, think about this, he could have simply like, as soon as they started grumbling, left the synagogue, peace out. You got my invitation to come to the bread of life and just leave it at that. But instead he comes back to this statement that he made earlier and he repeats it differently. Remember the statement in verse 37? All who the Father gives me will come to me. And now in verse 44, none can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we need to consider the implications of what that means. In these two statements, and we're going to spend all of our time unpacking it, Jesus is saying, unambiguously, that whether or not someone comes to him, whether or not someone believes in him, is entirely contingent on one thing, whether or not the Father gives them to the Son. That's the basis, that's the blade that this falls on. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him sent me draws him. And the Greek word that John uses here in verse forty-four is even more impactful. We don't feel it in the English. The word is dynamite. So in verse forty-four, when Jesus says "can," before the word "come," that word in Greek is literally "to be able." So Jesus' point is that no one is able to come to me on their own. In order for them to come to me, God must draw them. God must give them to me, the Son. This is Jesus' response to their unbelief. Out of all that he could say in this moment to persuade them, to join him, to receive him, he says what to me seems to be the exact opposite. And as we go into the coming weeks, you'll see he continues this trend. He says to them, why are you grumbling? Don't you know that you can't believe in me? You can't receive me. You can't come to me unless the Father draws you to me. And then in verse 45, he begins to unpack what he means when he says, the Father must draw them. Look at this. Verse 45, Jesus says, he continues, it is written in the prophet's and he's re- referring to Isaiah 54, 13, not too far from Isaiah 55, which we just saw. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone, he says, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So this is how people are drawn to Jesus. Jesus, he goes to the Old Testament, he goes to Isaiah fifty four thirteen. he quotes the prophet, he's showing these Jewish leaders, he's saying, listen, your unbelief isn't shocking to me, it's not surprising to me. Because if you recall, when the prophet Isaiah wrote, when he wrote and he described the redeemed, those who would be saved, when he described those who would come to Christ ultimately, he described them as people who would be taught by God. That's what Isaiah 54.13 is all about. It's describing the redeemed people of God. So this drawing word that is used in John 6.44 is a matter of being taught by God. Jesus puts it like this: everyone who is heard and learned from the Father will comes to, come to me. That's how he describes this drawing. There's a kind of hearing and a kind of learning that happens from God that must happen for anyone to come to Jesus he says without this drawing this is Jesus's words no one comes to me and so what are we to make of this how do we understand this well the first thing is this it's important to note that their inability to come to Jesus and I use that word very deliberately because the word dynamite in verse 44 is about ability their inability to come to Jesus isn't an inability due to a lack of evidence. It's not an inability due to a lack of, of, of seeing Jesus in front of them, seeing and knowing his value and his worth in all the times that he's healed people, sign after sign after sign that he's shown him. It's not, a, it's not an inability in seeing that. That's in front of them. They recognize it. I mean, remember verse 15, the crowd when, th- when they they just seen him feed 5,000 people, verse 15 says they were going to take him by force and they were going to make him king. They know who he is. They have an understanding about what he is. They've seen the signs. So it's not an inability to see his value and his worth and his glory. They can see it. Where does the inability come from? Well, as we get to the end of John 6, and we're going we're to explore this much deeper in the coming weeks, God willing, But as we get to the end of John 6 and this discussion between Jesus and the crowd and the the Jewish leaders of the synagogue, what we see here is Jesus explains and he gives a basis for why they are unable, where this inability comes from. And so if you turn to verse 63, we're just going to peek at it. We're not going to dig too deep into it, but it's important because he unpacks what he means. Verse 63, so after the, these disciples, this massive crowd of people who've, who's followed him around, after they begin to grumble and they begin to disperse, he tells them this line. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then in verse 65, he tells them why they don't believe. And this is important because it connects back to where we were. He says specifically, this, this lack of belief that you have, despite seeing me and hearing me, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So he's connecting their unbelief in this moment and their desire to split and leave him with the fact that he had said earlier to them, no one can come to me unless it's granted to to them by the Father. (laughs) And he says here at the beginning, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no help at all. And so what he does there is he helps us because he gives us an understanding of why they are unable this this isn't a physical inability. Like I can't walk through that wall and I can't take off and fly. That's physically impossible. There are external realities that stop me from being able to do that. That's not what this is. When he uses the word flesh, he makes it clear that the inability he's talking about here is internal. It is rooted in the, the, the flesh of man. It is rooted in our own natural desires. That's what the flesh is here. The main issue with their ability to come to Jesus is they don't want to come to Jesus. They don't want to. There's other things that are more entertaining, more inerjo- enjoyable. There are other things that they, they desire. The human heart, Jesus is saying, when he says the flesh is of no help at all, The human heart itself has a natural inclination not toward God, not toward Jesus, but against him and towards other things. Away from him. That's the inability he's talking about here, which is why he says the flesh is of no help at all. You want to look inside yourself to figure this thing out? It's not going to help you. You don't want me. In order for you to come to me, you need the Spirit to give you life, which is just another way of saying, the Father must draw you to me. Without it, you would never come to me. Paul tells us this clearly in Romans 8, Romans 8, 7, when he says, The mind that is set on the flesh and he's talking about the default state of the human mind, the mind that, is, that it does not want to, it, it, the mind that is, is, is born with, the mind that we have naturally in this world. He says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, Paul says, it cannot submit to God's law. Then he says, those who are in the flesh Cannot please God. And he's talking about humanity. He's talking about the human race. Paul's just saying the exact thing that Jesus is saying when Jesus says in John 6, No one can come to me apart from the work of the Father. We do not naturally incline ourselves to trust in Jesus or to receive him or to, to, to go to God and to love him because our flesh, inside our flesh, there is a brokenness, there is a sin reality that is hostile to God and in order for it to be overcome it requires a a divine act of the living God and this is a it's been a tough tough week going through this passage this is a bleak picture of the human heart this is not fun to be able to say this about the human heart but it's also true it is a true assessment of our moral state left to our own devices, just left alone, we would never come to Jesus. We would never seek God. We wouldn't want to. I mean, Romans 3 has an entire section that I cut out because of time that basically reinforces this over and over and over again, grafting a ton of text from the Psalms. Jesus says here, the flesh itself is of no help at all. And he means that the only thing stopping us from believing in him is us we're the reason why. There's a native hostility in us towards God. and The reason I'm laboring this a little bit is that it's clear Jesus doesn't bring this up accidentally. He doesn't need to go here. He doesn't need to say that line in verse 44, but he desires in this scene to show the people in his immediate context and to show us 2,000 years later the utter hopelessness of the human soul apart from the mercy of God. It's important for us to see what it took to get us saved. It wasn't a simple thing. It wasn't an easy thing. And I want to be very clear what this means, so I'm just going to use unambiguous language to describe what this passage is teaching. The plain teaching of this text is that God is completely and entirely sovereign over the salvation of man. Salvation isn't ultimately or even decisively up to the act to the, or, or decisively even an act of the will of a human being. Because as these texts tell us, our wills are all jacked up. The flesh is of no help at all. You're not going to do this on your own. What must happen for us to believe in Jesus is this divine act by which God, in great mercy and love, unfailingly and invincibly draws sinners to his son. If that doesn't happen, we will remain lost forever. And since this is our own flesh, think about this. It needs to be said here that because this is arising from us, He's not doing anything to us, just showing his mercy and grace every day that we live. Because this is arising out of our hearts, God would do us no wrong if he simply left us to our own desires. If he just let us continue to run into our own destruction, it would not be wrong for him to do that. It would be justice for him to do that. If he said to us, if he looked down to us in our rebellion and said, you know what, your will be done, your will be done. If you want to run from me, you run and see how far you can get. If he did that, that would be just for him. That would be what we deserve. But praise be to God, he doesn't do that. For some absurd, gracious reason, he doesn't do that. If we trust him, if we believe in him right now, it isn't because, like our faith in Jesus right now isn't because we're smarter or more clever than our neighbors down the street who don't believe. Our trusting in Christ right now isn't because we're more spiritually intuitive than those who've rejected them. It's not because of anything in us. The reason we trust in Jesus is simply because, verse 37, the Father has given us to his Son, and all who he gives to the Son come without fail. He didn't need to do that. He didn't, he didn't owe us a thing, which is why when we talk about salvation, we call it grace. We call it mercy. It's not owed to us. And John 6 is clear here that not everyone is drawn. I mean, look at this. Jesus is telling them, why are you grumbling about my parents? Why are you talking about that? It doesn't matter what I tell you. It doesn't matter what I show you. It doesn't matter how many signs you see. Later on, he says, what if you were to see the Son of Man rise into heaven? And his point is here, it doesn't matter what I show you. Without the Father drawing you to me, you will forever hate me and be blind to my glory. You can't see me for who I am. Because of your flesh, because of your own desires. And lest we think that this is just an isolated concept that's in John 6, I'm going to read to you just a few passages. And I want you to just... Through the the realities that we've seen Jesus say here, look at these texts, no matter how many times you've heard them before, and and, and try to grapple with what they're saying in light of Jesus' statements here. Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now think about that. He's saying that we've been given a gift from God. Part of that gift, it, he says here is that we've been saved through faith. If my receiving of Him isn't something that I manufacture in my own hearts, then that means that the very faith that I believe in Jesus is a gift from God. Our believing in Christ, the difference between us being in Christ and us being outside of Jesus, and outside of all the promises that he gives us, that difference is through faith. The faith that unites us to him isn't manufactured in our hearts. We don't create it. It's a gift from God, Paul says. Remember Acts, and uh, when Paul's in Philippi, he's preaching by the river, and uh, Lydia, who's this, uh, you know, uh, she's corporate uh, fashionista, um, is, is listening to him preach, and, and it says very clearly, God opened her, hearts to re- her heart to receive what Paul was saying. That's what he's talking about here. Paul saw it over and over again. In fact, we're going to see in a little bit, it happened to him. Um, and it wasn't, it was, it, this, this happened irrespective of anything we had done or would do, which is why Second Timothy 1.9 puts it like this. Listen to this. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus, get this, before the ages began. Ephesians 1.4 says it like this, God chose us in Christ, eclectos, the words I took out of from a larger number, these, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So think about that. Those two verses, and there are many others in the Scriptures, say that God gave us to his Son before anything was created, before there was any creation. That is stunning to me. I mean, I don't know about you. These passages tell us that the reason you and I have faith in Jesus right now, today in 2021 is because God, from all of eternity, before you and I were created, before there was a universe, before there was anything, before you and I had done anything good or evil, God gave us to his son. He placed us in his son, and then he he committed in our lives, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it might be for each of us, He committed to drawing us unfailingly to Jesus. That's what happened to you if you believe. If you believe right now, your story started before the creation of the universe. Now, I want to caution us on, on a few things that I think we're, because of our philosophical presuppositions about reality, capable of falling into. What this doesn't teach us is that we're all robots this doesn't teach us that we're all merely pawns on a chessboard the Bible never teaches that the Bible holds all of us morally accountable before God we're responsible for what we do we're responsible for rejecting Christ all of our decisions matter eternally but the reality is we are far worse off and more sinful than we could possibly imagine. And yet God, in his great love for us, has mercifully chosen to be merciful to whom he will be merciful. And John six tells us that God is sovereign over salvation. And let me tell you right now, no matter how you feel about it right now, this is the best news ever. This is tremendously good news because it means that God can reach into our rebellious hearts and do what would have otherwise been impossible. He can make us alive despite, get this, every inclination in us to stay dead. This is a miraculous gracious act of God on sinners who apart from him would despise him and Jesus in this text, in this story, in this event wants us to know this aspect of God's character. He's not hiding it. He's not skipping around it. He's holding it out. And the reason why is because when we see this truth for what it is, when this truth about God's sovereignty grips us and, 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 and sinks the anchors of its reality deep into our souls, that our entire life in christ as christians every breath of faith that we have is a result of unilateral divine grace when we see that three things become remarkably clear in fact a myriad of things do but i'm going to give you three the first is this if the very faith we have isn't a result of anything good in us but is a gift of god my very receiving of jesus is a divine gift Then nothing I have in Christ is tied to my performance. Nothing. All that I am in Christ is a gift. And therefore, I have no room to boast. I have no room to be arrogant. I can walk in humility, aware that the difference between me and anyone else in these houses here who's an unbeliever is merely God's grace. That's the only difference. God's grace, which I do not deserve. And so I can live my life marveling at the fact that despite all that I was, all that I am even now, God had mercy on me. I'm not a Christian because I'm better at receiving Jesus than other people. I'm a Christian only because God gave me to his son. And if that truth grips you, it will produce, I mean, if it really takes root in your heart, and it doesn't just be a theological idea up here, if it takes root in you, it will produce humility and wonder and amazement in God. And it, will, it makes me want to live every day making much of this God and not spend my life on the trivialities of the world. Secondly, if this is true, then what this means, and this is precious to me, so precious to me, what this means is that there is no one who is too far from God such that he can't save them. No one think about that. If this is true, that we are not ultimate in determining whether or not God has mercy on us, it means that there is no heart in the world so hard that God can't save them. In other words, there is no one in your life, think about somebody in your life right now who's an unbeliever, somebody you've been praying for. There is no one that is too far from God such that he can't save them. All who he gives to his son will come to him. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy 1 um, says the very reason that God saved him after allowing, think about Paul's life, allowing him to kick against the goads. That's his language from Acts 28. And rebel for decades. I mean, think about that. He says, after all those years, the reason God saved me in 1 Timothy 1 is to show the patience of Jesus. Jesus waited for me. And then it says that God had, in Galatians 1, set Paul apart before he was born, and it pleased God to reveal his son to him. That's the hearing and the learning from John 6. That's that's the, the father teaching Paul, in that moment, Jesus is my son, and showing him how glorious he is. I mean, Paul said, I'm the chief sinner. I'm the greatest sinner in the world. Nobody hated Jesus like me, and I take his word for it, especially when he's writing as the inspired author of the scriptures. Nobody hated Jesus as much as Paul, and yet he's the one God saves. Now, think about that. There was zero evidence in Paul Zero evidence in Paul that he would ever belong to Christ. And yet God reached into his soul and said, you're mine. You belong to me. Despite all that you are and all that you've done to my people, you're mine. And then you know the rest of the story. The New Testament gets written. So this is extraordinarily hopeful, hopeful for me. For those people here and, and online who have individuals in your life, families in your lives who are so far from God right now that it seems impossible. That, and, and trust me, if it was up to them, it would be impossible. I just would commend to you, keep showing them Jesus. Keep telling them about Jesus. Keep loving them. Keep praying for them. And this is the reason why we pray for people who are lost. Think about it. We're, We're not asking God to do what we can do. We're asking God to do what we can't do. And this is it. Open their eyes, Father. Help them see Jesus as the treasure that he is. And then we sit back and we trust that God is actually in control and that God is capable of He's glorious enough and powerful enough to save literally anyone. And then the third option, the third not option, the third reality that springs from this truth is, uh, is probably the one that's most clearly expressed in John 6. And it's this. All that the Father gives the Son, including you, including me, if our faith is in Jesus, all of us will never be cast out Jesus says he will raise us up on the last day let me read verse 37 again all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out now why is that Jesus why won't you cast out people who come to you he says for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose listen to this Look in your Bibles. It's there. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is a precious promise. This is a precious promise from Jesus, and it's a guarantee that if you belong to him, if God has drawn you to his son, and you look at Jesus in the scriptures, and you find him beautiful and wonderful and worthy to be loved and embraced, then you need to know From this text, Christ is saying, I have you forever. You're mine. You belong to me. I will never cast you out. You belong to Jesus for all eternity, and he promises here to raise you up on the last day. This is why Jesus is laboring in this text to show all of these deep, deep realities about salvation. He wants us to know this, that he's not going to lose anything that the Father has given him, including us. And all of that hinges on this one statement that he makes several times throughout John 6, that he is the one who's come down from heaven. He's the true bread who's come down from heaven. He came down specifically to guarantee that he would lose nothing, that we would be his forever. And the reason this is such a big deal, and I don't know if you saw this as we were reading through, is because of something he says in verse 46. I want you to look at it again. Verse 46. Just after describing that we need to hear and learn from the Father in order to be drawn to Jesus, he says something that is seemingly innocuous, but powerful. Not, he says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. What do you think was going through his mind? He's seen the Father. There's a man standing in front of you, Jesus of Nazareth, this rabbi, Capernaum, the synagogue, and he says to you, I've seen God been in his presence for all eternity. He's my dad. And I had to leave him to guarantee this promise. I had to leave the eternal joy of being, I mean, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, face to face with God. And the word was God, He had to leave that embrace with his father in order to accomplish his father's will. And this is the will of his father, that he would lose nothing of all that his father has given him, but raise it up on the last day. And so this coming down from heaven is not a throwaway concept, because in coming down from heaven, he had to go to a cross. And it's on that cross that he pays for this promise to be true and kept. Without the cross, there would be no promise. Nothing he's saying here would have any weight. The cross is the very means by which Christ, in paying with his own blood, the very means by which he can say to us, you're mine forever. I paid for you. You belong to me. I ransomed you from sin and death. You're mine from now on. The cross is what seals the promise. It's not going to be infringed on. It's not going to be revoked. You're mine. Think about that and reflect on it within the context of all that we've done not to deserve it. All that we are even now in our sin. Christ goes to to the cross to purchase a people for himself with his own blood and guarantee I'm not losing a single one. I will get what I paid for. Every last one. They're coming home with me. And he's saying we are his forever. This is why he goes to such lengths in John 6. He Draws out this really deep reality about the Father giving him these people and him coming down to heaven to guarantee that he loses none of them. This isn't the, first, this isn't the last time he's going to do this in the book of John. He will do it over and over and over and over and over again until we get it. And all of that took place in order for you and I to trust in Jesus. It was a divine act by God, from all eternity, to, to draw us to this precious, infinitely valuable treasure that we call Jesus. And without this divine act, we would, be, we would remain lost forever. So in a few moments, we're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the act by which Christians celebrate this very ransom that I've been talking about, the death of Jesus on his cross, the reason he came down from heaven so that he would lose nothing of all that the Father had given him. It's this act of the Lord's Supper that we celebrate that. We embrace what he did on the cross. And so if your faith is in Christ Jesus, you are welcome and invited to participate. There's single serve communion cups out in the hall if you didn't grab them before and you can do that during the next song. But if your faith is not in Christ I just want to say something to you. You might be hearing this and wondering, you know that's that's great, Jeremy. Um, I hear what you're saying about Jesus, but the question I've got is, did God give me to the Son? Am I one of these that john six is is talking about, and w- what I want to say to you it, whether you're here because I don't know where everyone is in terms of where th- their walk with Jesus. I, I, want, I want to believe that everyone's trusting in him. And I, I certainly don't know where everyone is online who's watching this. But you need to know that you're not hearing this by accident. You're not here by coincidence. God brought you here. God caused you to click a link. God drew you to hear this message because he wants you to hear it. This invitation is for you. The bread of life can be yours. Receive him. This is all all yours if you will simply have him. So never say to yourself, well, God didn't choose me. God didn't give me to his son. Never say that. First off, you're not God. You don't get to make that call. And secondly, you can hear me right now. And right now, Jesus is saying through John 6.40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And so just believe in him. Receive him right now. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad your life's been. Probably hasn't been as bad as mine, but maybe. It doesn't matter. The only thing that is relevant right now, the only thing that matters right now is if in seeing the bread of life, you say, I want you, Jesus. I want to receive you. I want to have you. I want all that you've promised here. And if you trust him, if you put your life in his hands and you say, say that to, in your heart to him, if you do that, I can guarantee you right now, you will have eternal life. I'm 1,000% confident. That's, uh, that's true. I bank my life on it. And the promise here that he makes to you is that when you receive him, when you come to him and say, I, I want you, Jesus, his promise is, you're mine forever. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never cast you out. You will be with me for all eternity. You will be with me in my Father. <laughs> Experiencing the love that they had from before the foundation of the world, and so I would just invite you to consider this Christ and His promises, and to receive Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the there are, there are much more shallow ends in the the ocean of the glory of God than this one. This is some of the deepest stuff you can touch in the scriptures. And I feel so completely overwhelmed by the realities that are here. And I pray that there hasn't been any deficiency in anything I've said, but it's been very clearly understood and heard and that your, your grace would allow all of us to receive what you want us to see in this text. And I ask right now, Father God, that we would recognize that your, so, your sovereignty over salvation, that we would see this as not an impediment for those to come to you, but rather the greatest possible hope. Because there are so many people in our lives who, if it was up to them, Father, they would never receive Jesus in a thousand years. And so we plead with you, Father God, that you would, through your great power and majesty, open the eyes of these blind people so that they could see the glory of Jesus Christ. And we know that if they turn to you, there is only one person, one being, I should say, who gets the glory, and that's you. I pray that you get our hearts around this truth, Father God, that we would not miss it. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen.